This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm your host, Eggie Dubon. Thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, today on the show, peace starts at home before preaching it to the world. That's Fijian Prime Minister Rambuka's words on his visit to Australia. Everything is resolved within the family. We talk to each other and we avoid break. That would be our contribution to world peace. First of all, we have to establish it at home in, in Oceania. Excitement and caution as the possibility of palm scheme workers could have their families join them while working in Australia. There are a lot of excitements in this country when this scheme was announced. From the government side, we are cautiously approaching it. And a rare breed of possum in Papua New Guinea has come to light. Is it a good thing? Well, we'll find out later in the show. Uh, stay tuned. I'm Aggie Dubol and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, we head to the Kingdom of Donga, because owning a gun has never been common. But an uptick in crime and illegally smuggled guns has some people in the country worried. And in response, they say they want to arm themselves to protect their families. Marion Kupo reports from the Tongan capital, Nukualofa. In Tonga, Sunday is always the most peaceful day of the week. The church bells ring all morning and the smell of the earth oven, known as um over here, wraps through the streets. Farmer David Desamp is a church regular, travelling from his home to the chapel every Sunday. And these days, a special passenger comes in the car with him and his family. When I go to church, I take my guns with me. David owns livestock and he first got a firearm for his work. But these days, he says it is his way of protecting his family. I feel secure having a firearm. There have been a lot of robberies in our neighbourhood. It's getting worse every day. That's why I sleep with a gun at arm's reach. And Tevita's not alone. More violent crimes and drugs use in Tonga mean an increasing number are getting armed. Like most Pacific countries, guns are not common here. Yet sentiment is changing, with many Tongans the ABC spoke to softening the stance on the issue. And police are worried. In terms of allowing people to have firearms for self-defence purposes, uh uh, we do not uh, support it. Deputy Police Commissioner Devita Vailea says the spread of guns will cause other problems. Tonga has a long-standing relationship with the U.S. and he says the gun problem seen in those countries is not welcomed here. We do not want Tonga to be part of that uh, problem. Yet authorities say an underground black market for guns is circulating in the community and more than 2,000 seized illegal firearms kept at the police station in Nukualofa. It's a large number, considering only 105,000 people live in Tonga. The overall uh, uh, view about this, we working uh, better with uh, custom department in trying to secure our border. According to Tonga's head of custom, Michael Thokangasinga, insider jobs are a problem. Anyone involved, whether from within the administration or outside, uh, is dealt with accordingly um, under the law. At the capital's main port, new X-ray machines have been introduced to try and find guns. With the machines, we can find uh, basically anything. It's just, um, just a matter of training our staff. But legally, at least, it's not 
easy to own a gun in Tonga. The applicant has to be a reliable person and they have to be endorsed by a reverend from the village or they must have a farm or have livestock. That's Nukalofa's district officer, Taisi Takao. He checks each applicant in the capital to make sure they're appropriate. Then it's up to the police. The Minister of Police has the authority to uh, assess the individual application and approve for uh, someone to uh, acquire, uh, import and possess a firearm. Yet despite the tight checks, the Deputy Commissioner confesses more illegal firearms are circulating around Tonga and the black market is growing. Reports suggest 70% of all drug raids in Tonga recover illegal weapons. And the Deputy Commissioner says the number of criminal cases involving firearms to August this year has already matched last year's number. Back at Devita's farm, he thinks more Tongans should own guns to help keep burglars and intruders away from their homes. The government should allow us to shoot intruders, not to kill, but just to injure them for the police. That's Tongan and farmer Devita Senth ending that report from Maringupu and Tonga. Pacific Beat. Up from Tonga, we go to Beijing, where the Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea is on a state visit. James Marape and Solomon Islands Deputy Prime Minister Manasi Malanga are among world leaders in Beijing. They're in town for the third Belt and Road Forum. It's a key initiative in China's foreign policy. So joining us on the line from Beijing is Papua New Guinea journalist Claudia Telly from the Post-Korea newspaper. With that, I say good morning. Good morning. Oh, thank you so much, Claudia, for joining us. Uh, look, how has Mr. Marape been received on this trip to China? Uh, thank you. So, um, Prime Minister James Marape arrived in, in Beijing um, on Monday. Um, he flew in from Hong Kong where he was at the PNG Asia Investment Conference. Um, so, here in Beijing, uh, Mr. Marape and his delegation, uh, they received a warm reception. Um, they were received by uh, China's um, education minister, Huai Jinpang. Um, he was accompanied by other senior Chinese government officials. Uh, as you know, Mr. Marpe is here in China, the invitation of um, China's President Xi Jinping to attend the uh, Third Belt and Road Forum, uh, which will be formally opened um, later this morning. Um, so since then, on Monday evening, uh, Mr. Marpe, he met with um, Chinese Premier, um, His Excellency Li Chiang, uh, for a bilateral discussion. Um, this was shortly followed by the uh, signing of uh, several agreements between um, China and Papua New Guinea. Um, yesterday, Mr. Marpe, um, he addressed the uh, Beijing Normal University and um, he also visited the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank and uh, a couple of other um, organizations as well. Um, so um, for today, um, he will be attending the, um, the Belt and Road Forum uh, where he is also um, expected to deliver an address. Mm. Yeah. Uh, thank you for that, Claudia. Uh, what is the Prime Minister yeah. actually looking to get out of his visit for China? I mean, I know you mentioned there that he was there, he signed a couple of things. Uh, are you able to elaborate a little bit more on that? Mm. Yeah, so I, I believe, you know, Mr. Marple, like any other head of state, is is looking to get out of the bath, um 
best out of the Belt and Road Forum. Um, and also not only that, but the um, bilateral relations between China and Papua New Guinea as well. You know, Papua New Guinea being a developing country, I think Mr. Marpe will be looking for opportunities of development for, for the country and also maybe for the Pacific region as a whole. Now, you know, I, I do know that there are different um, perceptions and opinions on, on the development assistance from, um, from China to other countries. But uh, overall, I, I believe, um, like I said, Prime Minister Marpe, uh, like any other head of state will be acting in the best um, interest of, of Papua New Guinea. Um, as I mentioned, I'm already following the bilateral discussion on Monday um, with the Chinese Premier. Um, several agreements were signed um, in the areas of economy, development, um, energy, education and, and others. So um, since today will be the um, opening of the forum, um, we will look forward to what discussions um, Mr. Marpe will be partaking in um, today and tomorrow. Mm. Are you able to sort of sum up maybe what that relationship looks like between PNG and China? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, um, recently Papua New Guinea and, and China celebrated uh, 47 years of uh, bilateral relations. Um, this started in uh, 1976, you know, just one year after Papua New Guinea gained independence. So uh, so this relationship is over the years um, reflected um, through consistent cooperation and, and um, development opportunities for both countries. Um, at the bilateral meeting, uh, Mr. Marpe indicated uh, Papua New Guinea's commitment um, to, this, to this partnership. Um, he also um, highlighted the the country's um, commitment to the Belt and Road Initiative. And, and I believe there is more to come in the PNG-China relations. Uh, the Chinese side have also expressed a similar sentiment. So, so at this stage, I'd say um, the PNG-China uh, relation is, is on an exceptionally good note. Mm. Do you know, though, uh, Claudia, what other Pacific leaders are there in China for, uh, for the Belt and Road Forum? Yeah. So um, at the moment, according to a list that was released um, late last night, um, Pacific um, Island leaders arriving here um, has only mentioned um, Prime Minister James Marabe. Apart from that, I am not too sure. We have not been advised as yet, but the opening ceremony today, this morning, shall uh, definitely shed light on the representatives of um, each country in the Pacific who are attending the forum. So how important is this Belt and Road Initiative uh, for China's foreign relations with the Pacific? I mean, what what do you hope that the Pacific countries could get out of it? Mm. Yeah, well, um, you know, I, I, I certainly believe that the Belt and Road Initiative um, in the Pacific region has, has certainly, you know, transformed China's um, foreign relations with the Pacific to one of, you know, extremely rapid development, you know. So, like I said, in the, um, about... Ten countries in in the Pacific have signed up for the BRI, and and since then, you know, various projects from infrastructure to agriculture, perhaps energy or economic development, has has taken place in each country, and then this has certainly enhanced um, China's relationship and cooperation with um, Pacific Island countries, and has also, you know, um, moved um China. Um, you know, as, as to a very visible level as, as a development partner in, in the region as well. Um, for several heads of state um, in, in the region have come out, you know, in support of the BRI. And, and I believe that this um, third Belt and Road Forum, you know, will open up more doors for uh, positive development and, and cooperation for Pacific countries and, and with China. Uh, Claudia, I believe he's obviously meant to deliver a keynote message during the forum on green silk for harmony with nature. Are you able to elaborate on that? 
Yes. So um, it was um, noted that this um, Papua New Guinea is one of the countries that um, will be um, taking a, a lead in in the um, Green Silk for Nature um, um, theme um, theme um, forum. So Mr. Marpe will be, be uh, making a speech, I believe, on the impact of um, development on the, the environment in the Pacific. So um, I believe also on that um, one of the um, one of the agreements that was signed between um, Papua New Guinea and um, China included a the built of a building of a demonstration, low carbon demonstration zone in the Pacific. So I believe uh, Mr. Mr. Marpe will be giving a speech around uh, around that. Awesome, Claudia. It's always great to catch up with you. We really appreciate it. Um, all the best uh, in your covering of uh, what is happening there uh, at the moment. So thank you very much for your time this morning. Thanks for having me. No worries. That, of course, is uh, Papua New Guinea journalist in Beijing, Claudia Telly from the Post-Korean newspaper. Well, while PNG's Prime Minister is in China, Fiji's Prime Minister, Sidiveni Rambuka, is giving the third bout in road forum a miss. Instead, Prime Minister Rambuka is currently in Australia, meeting with leaders in Canberra. Last night, he appeared at a Lowy Institute event, emphasising his government's role in evacuating stranded Fijian citizens from Israel. Mr Rambuka told the ABC's Stephen Jejitz about his government's push for world peace, starting in the Pacific. We want to believe in the zone of peace concept. And we all strive to do everything we do in our own uh, territories, in our own countries, to promote peace and not encourage anything that will uh, increase tension that could lead to uh, international rivalries. Uh, So that is the concept. So nothing... Uh, doctrinal. It is uh, more of a spiritual concept where we embrace the concept, we embrace the principles, uh, particularly the, uh, our approach to, to uh, non-aggressive uh, methods, where we uh, dialogue, uh, having the, as a background, the Wuwale principles of the Pacific family. Everything is resolved within the family. We talk to each other and we avoid breaks. That would be our contribution to world peace. But first of all, we have to establish it at home in in Oceania. Now, let's talk about geopolitics a little closer to home. Uh, The analysis that often emerges, at least here in Australia, is that under your leadership over the last 10 months, Fiji has tacked more closely to traditional partners, at least in the security space, while making it clear that when it comes to China, whilst you've got a big appetite for economic cooperation, you don't see a particular role for them in a security sense. Is that an accurate analysis? And can I ask you, sir, what's the status of the police agreement that uh, you promised to review uh, between Fiji and China? Is that still ongoing? No, it is not. Uh, it has been uh, put on hold, uh, particularly because of the differences in our systems of policing, uh, investigations, and our, and our legal system. Uh, justice system. So we would rather, or I would rather have Fiji 
go back to its traditional and comfortable relationships of the, of the past. The sad thing about it is that who is now creating the, uh, the conflict situation in the Pacific? China and in the USA? They were friends. In, in Europe, USA bloc and uh, Russia, they were friends. Why are we going to this? Well, the former friends are considered as a threat to each other. Why can't we uh, try and relive the relationship they had during the Second World War? They were friends during the Second World War. It was only after, when we had peace, that each developed their own sovereign interests, their own sovereign capabilities, their own defense capabilities, and then uh, it came into uh, so expansionism. And expansionism is not really a, a military term. It is uh, just expanding your spheres and areas of influence. Uh, and sadly, when you have influence there, you'd like to protect it. And how do you protect it? But militarily. Let's move to climate change. Australia, as you know, is pushing for a conference of the parties co-hosted with the Pacific. Some Pacific leaders say Australia hasn't done enough on climate policy in its own domestic policy to actually merit that. What's your belief? Has Australia done enough to get this over the line and does it need to take sharper action? Which of the hosts of uh, COP conferences done enough? None. What we have to do is to go and talk to them, talk with them, while they're hosting it. We are asking the world to do this. Are we doing it? And I would uh, encourage the uh, Oceania region and the leaders of the Pacific Island Forum, let us support Australia. It is the only time when we can bring the world to us. So they are prepared to uh, host it and uh, finance it. Let's go there and have our peace. And uh, that will resonate to the rest of the world, particularly those of us who are minimum emitters, but uh, maximum, uh, maximum threat, threatened by the uh, atrocities of climate change. Uh, last question, just on the Australia-Fiji relationship. It seems in very good shape, but there are some tensions. We heard them just in your community event this morning about difficulties around the Palm Scheme, uh, concerns in Fiji and other countries about a possibility that it may feed into skills shortages. What's your assessment of Palm? Is it working well at the moment, and what changes may be necessary? I believe that Palm is only a temporary. A solution to the employment and unemployment problem we have at home. Uh, we have now defence cooperation with, uh, we have had defence cooperation with Australia and other Pacific uh, and uh, ASEAN uh, countries, the defence cooperation program. Why can we not develop that sort of development, uh, that sort of association and cooperation in other areas rather than just confine it to military? We have a uh, a paramilitary establishment in uh, the west next to the airport, the international airport in 90. It's called Black Rock. It's where we have uh, troops from the region training together for deployment in, within the region for cyclone relief work. We, uh, we, we 
deployed some of ours for the bushfire problems that we had and the flooding. Then we went to uh, Vanuatu for post-cyclone relief work and also to to uh, Auckland, the Auckland region, for a major cyclone damage uh, that happened there. <coughs> we were prepared to deploy to Tonga. We were prepared to go to Maui in uh, Hawaii. So that's the sort of thing that we can develop out of a cooperation, uh, a cooperative effort like the BlackRock. At the moment, we are sending workers to Australia and New Zealand, uh, semi-skilled or unskilled workers. We have in- reintroduced technical training in our schools, and that is one area where we can go back to the old uh, education cooperation that we used to have with Australia and New Zealand uh, to beef up our capabilities of training skilled and uh, upskilling low-skilled workers for the labor market at home so that we do not have too many unemployed or unemployable. And uh, that is, there lies the answer. And that is Fiji Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka. He was talking to ABC Foreign Affairs reporter Stephen Jetchitz. As previously mentioned of Fijian PM Rambuka's visit to Lowy Institute, questions are now being raised with Australia's Prime Minister Anthony Albanese as to why the cost of sending money home to families is so high for workers from the Pacific. The Lowy Institute has just published a paper warning that urgent action is needed to cut the costs of overseas cash transfers. The ABC's senior business correspondent Peter Ryan says right now many Pacific workers are being asked to pay remittance fees that are disproportionately high compared to the rest of the world. Research from the Lowy Institute shows the global average cost of sending cash back home is around 6% per transaction, but it can be as high as a whopping 17% to move cash between Australia and the South Pacific. Now, many of the workers transferring cash are here as part of the Pacific Australian Mobility Program, which is essential for Pacific Island economies still hurting from the pandemic. The Lowy Institute's policy brief wants to see greater transparency of about the cost of transfers, subsidies for transfer workers to keep the costs down and for the Reserve Bank to temporarily administer the transfers. The Lowy Institute's research fellow, Dr Jessica Collins, told me if the cost of transfers were reduced from that peak of 17% back to around 3%, there'd be about $79 million going to households and not into the pockets of those transfer companies. We've got nearly 40,000 Pacific Islanders working here here in Australia, are sometimes separated from their families for up to years on end, uh, not seeing their kids grow up in many instances uh, during that time. And they're here working on our farms. But unfortunately, they're incurring some of the highest fees on that money sent home. So the transaction fees from Australia to the Pacific Islands are incurring some of the highest fees in the world. The global average is about 6%. The UN is trying to get it down to 3%. But we're seeing in the, from Australia to the Pacific, it's sometimes up to 17%. So you've looked at the amount of foreign aid that Australia provides to some South Pacific nations and you compared that to the value of those transaction fees. I looked at three countries, uh, Tonga, Vanuatu and Fiji. If we managed to get the cost of sending money home down to the target of 3%, uh, then an extra $79 million extra would be going into those three countries. And this is money that would be going directly into households. And that's actually double, currently double, the amount of aid that we give to Tonga. 
That's Lowy Institute Research Fellow Dr Jessica Collins with Peter Ryan. And Peter, Fiji's Prime Minister's in Australia today for a series of speeches. Will he be applying pressure about this high cost of Fijian workers sending cash home? Well, Annie Sitavani Rambuka is here to meet with the Prime Minister and Foreign Minister, the first visit by a Fijian Prime Minister since 2019. Of course, foreign aid, trade and security will be on the agenda. But of course, any assistance or intervention to bring down these high remittance costs will also be highly likely to be part of the talks, especially as Fiji continues to rebuild a traditional closer relationship with Australia since Mr Rambuka one power a year ago while, of course, managing the important diplomatic relationship and balance with China. And that's Peter Ryan, ABC's senior business correspondent, uh, talking to any guest. Stay tuned because up next is your news rep with producer Talia Auli'itia. Uh, you've been tuning into Pacific Beat. For centuries, Pacific Islanders have been sharing stories across the region. Stories from the Pacific is a weekly program that honours that tradition, allowing you to hear in-depth personal stories from sports people to farmers, artists to teachers, activists to entrepreneurs with one thing in common, their Pacific heritage and a unique and incredible story to tell. Stories from the Pacific, Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Welcome back. It is Pacific Beat. I'm your host, Aggie Dubol. Well, it is that time we were head around the region just to check what is happening. And of course, that is brought by our producer, Talia Auli-Itia, with our news wrap. Good morning. How's it going? Good morning, Aggie. <laughs> I'm a little bit surprised by this first story. Fiji's rugby coach is stepping down. Yes. I know that sports stories are supposed to be at the end of the bulletin, but the number of people who, since um, Simon Rawalui put the post on Twitter, messaged me to say, include this in your news wrap, is why I'm putting it first. Um, because because, yes, uh, Simon Raiwalui, coach of the Fijian national rugby team, has confirmed in a post on X, formerly known as Twitter, that he will leave his post at the end of his contract in December. He said it was time to make it official, so obviously there'd been a bit of talk about it, and he that he would not be seeking an extension of his contract. He thanked the players, staff and supporters for the, quote, wild ride. Now, people will know that Mr Raiwalui has been Fiji's coach since February this year, replacing Fern Cotter, uh, Vern Cotter rather, and of course under his stewardship led Fiji to the quarterfinals of the World Cup for the first time since 2007, only the third time in Fiji's history, not to mention those historic wins that people will talk about forever um, against the Wallabies in the Rugby World Cup pool match, as well as against England in Twickenham in August. Now, as you can imagine, um, the post has received a lot of love and Mr. Uiwalui said he was overwhelmed and intended to reply to every message. I went through the Twitter thread and he was replying to a lot of people saying that, you know, this wasn't just him being the head coach of a rugby team. This was about kids, family, community, all of those things. And I think as we saw by his performance at the Rugby World Cup, he really touched a lot of hearts, particularly when he donated that kit to Portugal after their first World Cup win. There was a um, tweet that also caught my eye because someone said, hey, maybe you want to go coach the Wallabies. Of course, Eddie Jones yesterday had a press conference saying that he had no intention of stepping down from Australia and that there were no talks with Japan. And in reply to that tweet, Mr. Wai just said no and then a laughing emoji. 
I think he wants a bit of a relaxation rather than a huge mountain of a challenge. Um, people will know that he also played for Fiji between 1997 and 2006. Well done to him. I think he's done an amazing job. So even though he's bowing out, that's okay. I'm sure there's going to be someone that'll come through for Fiji. Uh, look, we head to Marshall Islands because they have actually signed a new deal with the US. Yeah, so Reuters is reporting that the United States have signed a new 20-year agreement of economic assistance to the Marshall Islands worth $2.3 billion. So... Bit of change there. <laughs> the Marshalls have ties, um, of course, with the US um, under the Compacts of Free Agreement, which, you know, places like the Marshalls are quite strategically important. And in exchange for defence and economic assistance, they are given exclusive military access. Now, this deal, of course, comes after deals with Palau and Micronesia earlier this year. And the Marshalls had been calling on Washington to do better during the haggling of the details of this deal, um, in particular to address their legacy of nuclear testing on the islands. Um, Chief US negotiator Joseph Yun says all three coffers, which were uh, the what the cool kids call the Compacts of Free Agreement, will now go to the US Congress for appeal. And he says that they hope that he hopes that they will be enacted soon. Yeah, absolutely. They've been calling on that for a while, haven't they? Uh, oh, this is interesting. There's a new WHO regional director for the Western Pacific. Yeah, so the the World Health Organization, or WHO, Dr. Saya Maupiokala has been nominated to the position during the 74th session of the WHO Regional Committee for the Western Pacific. Now, his nomination was proposed by Tonga. Um, he's well known there as a surgeon with nearly 30 years of experience in public health, working in Tonga and across the Pacific to address health challenges such as climate change, non-communicable diseases and tobacco control. And he's also been very involved in work at the WHO um, as he is Tonga's Minister for Health. Now, here is a bit of Dr Piokala's address to the committee. At home, we say that it takes a village to raise a boy. Today, I stand here before you, not as Sayama Piukala, but as someone who is here because of that village. Mm. And this outcome today is not because of my doing, but a result of the contribution of my fellow villagers. Yeah, so beautiful. Such a nice way to just say, like, um, of the job. And, you know, he did um, pay tribute to all the, the people who helped him there and had faith in him. Now, WHO Director Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus was in Manila for the meeting and he congratulated Dr. Piakala on his appointment. He said the diversity of the Western Pacific makes it a very challenging job, but he reassured him that he would have the full support of the WHO. Have a listen. Dr. Pukala, you have not applied for an easy job, and you know it, but you have applied for one of the most important and one of the most rewarding. Yeah. So Dr. Piokala will take office as the regional director on the 1st of February next year for an initial term of five years. That could be extended for two terms. Um, and I know that there's a lot of work in terms of um, sustainability and putting in practices. So, yeah, yeah as absolutely. the director said, he's got a big job behind him. But as Dr. Piokala says, he also has a village behind <laughs> him. So we wish him all the best. We do, because I think he is the man for the job. We got to speak to him like two months ago. 
um, and his involvement also about trying to uh, get the new dialysis centre set up in Tonga. So mm. the man is doing good things for his community. So Definitely. Yeah, love that. Thank you very much, Tali, for bringing Thank our you. news wrap here. Uh, for today, I believe we're heading into a song, heading all the way to Solomon Islands. This is Legality with Fengali Ne right here on Pacific Beat. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Pacific Islanders participating in Australia's Labour Mobility Scheme will soon be allowed to have their loved ones close by as they work in Australia. Next year, a pilot programme will be set up in hopes of finding a sustainable way for workers to support their families while overseas. The Solomon Islands has signed up to the initiative, but Trade Commissioner at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Barrett Salato, told Carl Evans not every worker will be eligible. A lot of workers uh, that are joining the, the PAM schemes are paid on a, in a minimum wage category. So considering the cost of living in Australia, for a worker to take the whole family to Australia under the minimum wage salary would be very difficult. So the governments, uh, along with uh, the Pacific Island countries and, and the Australian government, will have to consider all cases before uh, selecting uh, which workers should join the scheme because it's not easy to bring uh, the, the entire family over to Australia to sustain them uh, living there. So we'll be approaching this pilot as a pilot within a pilot. So for us, when we launch it, we will be testing it as a pilot as well. So we will be selecting few workers to test it out. And then if it works then increase it. That's the thinking that the Solomon Islands government is taking. So we are taking it quite carefully, considering all aspects of the scheme. I see. So the Solomon Islands government and the Australian government, you'll use this as a chance to measure and collect data to get an idea of maybe the salaries of the workers, where they're living, how big their families are, to sort of try and figure out what is viable to make this pilot ongoing. Is that kind of what you'll be doing? Yeah, exactly. And, and the uh, Australian government is already doing that. They have assessed a number of issues uh, that they are considered for, for the scheme to be able to be rolled out. And so when it is become operational and there are issues that are being identified, then there will be an opportunity to address those issues so that when the other Pacific Island countries are able to join, then those issues are being addressed already so that there's a smooth transition. And I understand the respective employers within Australia will need to give consent to allow this program to take place. Would you like to see the employer take any sort of responsibility for the families while they're over there? The employers are the ones that will make the decisions on whether to bring the families or not. So that's key for this program. Regarding whether employers should take more responsibility of the family, I think that the scheme will be operated within the bounds of the new deeds and guidelines that was signed by the employers and the Australian government. So they will operate within those rules. I see. And do you expect take-up to be strong among Solomon Islanders? I mean, I imagine this would be a pretty popular pilot for, for many of the workers. There are a lot of excitements in this country when this scheme was announced. From the government side, we are cautiously approaching it, not to give high expectation that we will not be able to meet. Uh, but as I've said, 
those workers will be carefully selected based on the certain criteria that the Australian government is working on or government, our government uh, is also considering. And just last question before we go, Mr. Salado, what industry do you think this will be most suited to? Because I guess when you think of, you know, a lot of farm locations, workers often, you know, they'll bunk with each other in, in rooms perhaps of, of two or three, which, you know, wouldn't be suitable for a family and things like that. Do you expect this to be rolled out, I guess, closer to, to major centres that, that would allow amenities such as schools and things like that that families need? Yeah, those are being considered by the Australian government. The family that will be coming will not be living in isolated you know, rural community where there are no amenities or school for the children and, and or facilities like health, access to um, health and education. So the location factor is high up there in, in the way the, the workers will be considered and placed. And, and whatever issues that arise when it's being ruled out, then together with the Pacific Island countries, we will address them as we, we will progress implementing it. But for Solomon Islands, people are excited about it to join it. You know, hopefully in the future, families can can accompany their uh, husband, uh, wife, children can can go to, to Australia with the, the program. How long will the pilot program run for? Unfortunately, I will not be able to, to give you the time frame of the pilot, but I think the, the period up until mid-2024 might be the time that they are looking to pilot it out. That's Trade Commissioner at the Solomon Islands Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Barrett Salato, speaking with ABC's Carl Evans. Now, new research reveals the ancestry of a rare breed of possum in Papua New Guinea has come to light in what scientists describe as a major breakthrough. The miniature feather-tailed possum inhabits the northern end of PNG and West Papua. However, a new fossil analysis indicates it once existed in Australia about 25 million years ago. So, Professor Mike Archer is from the University of New South Wales School of Biological, Earth and Environmental Sciences and recently published these findings in the Australian Asia Journal of Paleontology. So he joins us on the line this morning. I'd like to say good morning, Mike. Good morning, Agnes. Oh, look, thank you so much for joining us. This is a fascinating uh, finding, of course. I'm wondering, how did you come across these findings and what do they say about a feather-tailed possum's ancestry? Yes, it's been a fantastic run for us. I mean, it all comes back to the, um, the Riversley World Heritage Area in northwestern Queensland, that area has produced the most extraordinary fossils spanning the last 25 million years of Australian history. And it surprised us with so many discoveries that we otherwise uh, had no idea about. And these feather-tailed possum discoveries were, were among the, the biggest surprises because, as you say, they have, they have rem- representatives here in Australia. The feather-tailed possum, it's beautiful little gliding possum in the forests of Australia, uh, we knew all about. There's a much less well-known animal in New Guinea, and this is a thing called Distichurus. It is another feather-tailed possum, same group, but completely different, and it doesn't glide. And everyone assumed that they originated first in New Guinea, and Riversley has proved them wrong. Michael, the research states, though, that millions of years ago when these possums lived in Australia, uh, PNG was largely underwater. Is that right? 
That's right. Um, New Guinea, the island of New Guinea, is essentially um, to Australia what the Himalayas are to India. When India crashed into Asia, up went the Himalayas. When Australia crashed into Southeast Asia about 15 million years ago, up popped New Guinea on the front edge of the Australian plate. So for us, it's fascinating because it means that while Australia began to dry out from that period, New Guinea was being pushed up into high altitudes and preserved the sort of wet, cooler environments that once swept across the whole continent. So some of the animals in New Guinea are kind of a reminder of the sorts of animals that were all across Australia 15 million years ago. Did climate sort of change or play a part in that? Oh, it sure did. When New Guinea popped up, all of the the rainfall that used to sweep in across Australia was suddenly stopped. You know, New Guinea grabbed it all. And that caused Australia to start to dry out. So it profoundly affected every kind of animal that was living on this continent. All the things that used to be, like all these feathertail possums, their ancestors, the ancestral kangaroos, koalas, all of them who were dependent on wet forests had to sort of restrict themselves to the east side of Australia, whereas once they were right across the continent. But what we didn't know was what were all these kinds of animals that were in the whole area of Australia that today, some of which we only find now in New Guinea. Yeah, what's fascinating, you talked about the gliding part. I mean, but are there other, sorry, differences between the feather-tailed possums that are found in PG and the ones that have been found in Australia? Well, we probably don't know enough about these guys in in, uh, New Guinea. Um, They're kind of rare animals. What we do know is, yes, they don't glide. They're bigger. Um, They're beautiful animals, but they're really a reminder of what the ancestors for both of these groups looked like. It's probably that the things we're in Australia that we're finding in Riversley in these fossil deposits are more like some of the things we see in New Guinea than the modern animal. The modern animal in Australia only started to glide probably within the last maybe seven to 10 million years ago when the forests in Australia began to open up, then there was a point in becoming a glider. You had to get from one tree to the next. In New Guinea, they just walk from one tree to the next because all the trees are sort of touching each other. So we think this whole gliding thing in Australia is a relatively recent skill developed by the Australian descendant of these ancestors. Wow, so fascinating. I understand, though, that these findings have introduced you to other mysteries, uh, particularly around their strange ear structure. Could you explain a little bit more on that? Yeah, that was a big surprise. I had seen for years ago that there was something very funny going on in the ear of the feather tail possum in Australia and in this New Guinea relative that's living there today. And it's a plate of bone that sticks up and it blocks nearly the whole of the passage in the ear of the of the sound coming into the ear and going to the eardrum. Why would you put a plate of bone in front of that eardrum? It didn't make any sense. But one of our other students uh, did a really very interesting study and found that actually physics is the solution to figure this out. That plate of bone was changing the frequency and the intensity of particular wavelengths coming into its ear. And we think that what was happening here was in in an ancient forest in Australia where there were so many different kinds of wonderful possums, far more than we see today, that must have been a noisy nightmare for any possum trying to communicate with its friends. So it may be that these particular possums worked out that if they focused on a very fine frequency and intensified that level of frequency with this plate of bone, um, that they could communicate with each other despite the cacophony of noise that was filling the forests all around them. 
Wow. Uh, Mike, can you share, though, what any of these new findings will do? Will it help to stimulate maybe further scientific research in other areas? Oh, you bet it will. Um, as we discover more about these animals, and ri- what Riversley does is it usually tantalizes us with little bits of uh, jaw and teeth and so on. Uh, the next step will be skulls, and then we'll we'll go to skeletons, and we'll actually be able to to answer the question: Were the ancestors of both groups gliding or not gliding? But for that, we need to find the whole skeletons. And slowly, Riversley does that. It, it it teases us with bits and pieces, and gradually gives us more complete specimens, and we can start to answer some of these incredible questions. I should have asked this earlier in the piece, but, you know, when you finally discover a rare species that had existed at least maybe 25 million years ago, how does one tell that it did exist 25 million years ago? Well, it's really interesting. Uh, The first thing that happens, of course, when you make that discovery is you have the biggest rush of adrenaline you could imagine. You know, you're you're suddenly discovering something that that we had no idea existed. And we started giving a lot of these things weird names because they were so odd. There is a weirdodonta. There's a bizarrodonta. There's a thingodonta. um, And they all eventually got scientific names. But when some of them were discovered, our colleagues didn't even believe these things were real because they were so strange. Australia used to have, as well as the ancestors of all the things we see today, it had a whole range of weird animals that it inherited from Gondwana when we used to be attached to Antarctica and that to South America. So we have a mix of these ancient kinds of animals persisting up through time with the origins of the modern animals coming at the same time. And Riversley slices across both of these events so we see in these fossil assemblages not only the ancestors of everything we expected to see, but a whole range of the last survivors of some of the weirdest groups that the world has ever seen. Mike, uh, quickly just before we wrap up, where to then from here with this uh, discovery? Well, we're probably going to have to um, look more carefully at some of these teeth. One of the things we're doing is looking at the elements. We're actually doing a chemical analyses of the enamel to see if we can figure out what their diets were. This is another interesting new area developing. Um, there are all kinds of interesting um, devices in the analytical center in the University of New South Wales that can they can give us uh, information about fossils that we never used to be able to uh, to get. You know, what what would how, how did these animals fit into the ecosystems of which they were a part? What were they eating? Who was eating them? All of these sorts of questions um, haven't yet been answered, but we now have the potential to explore them. I love that, Mike. Look, we thank you so much for your time this morning. Really appreciate it. That, of course, is Professor Mike Archer from the University of New South Wales School of Biological Earth and Environmental Scientists. Uh, Look, it brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. We'll be back same time tomorrow at 6am PNG time. You can hear us again this afternoon at 3pm PNG time. Uh, Stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia, though, because news is next. Coming up after that is Nisha Daily. And we'd like to acknowledge that Pacific Beat comes to you from the lands of the Boonarong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation.